This is another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hi, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto. And hey, everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Today, we are so incredibly honored to have Dr. Jeffrey Liker, and we're going to be talking about his new edition, the second edition of the Toyota Way, and I'm sure many other uh, elements we'll kind of cover too. Welcome, Dr. Liker. And, Thank you. Uh, and if you would tell, tell our healthcare audience for those that maybe aren't completely familiar with your background and the many works that you've done, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would. Well, my background is unusual. I like the idea of connecting the dots because when I was an undergraduate industrial engineering major, I that's what I was trying to do. Uh, and within industrial engineering, supposedly they're connecting man-machine materials and methods uh, and looking at that as a system, but the the man part was missing, uh, and that's what I was most interested in. So I was separately taking social psychology and sociology courses, kind of minoring that on my own. Uh, and then I was fortunate to work for a company at the time named General Foods, and they make products like uh, Post cereals and Craft. Uh, it was a brand, and they had a bunch of brands. Great, but they also had Gaines Dog Food and gravy trained dog food. That was another food division. In that dog food division, they had been experimenting with something called socio-technical systems. And the idea was to integrate the social and technical systems, which would be unusual. It was, uh, it was one of the few companies in the world doing it. Uh, and this is an automated factory. And you would have people control panels and some people loading and unloading. And they created self-contained teams that could do all the jobs required to produce the dog food. And they gave them a lot of autonomy. And when they did that, everything got better. Uh, quality, yield, uh, safety, everything got better. So that, I then wrote papers and courses where it didn't really fit as an undergraduate. Uh, but that's really was my passion at the time. I, that got me interested enough that I got a PhD in sociology and went in a different direction. And then I was sort of desperate for a job in uh, looking in 1981 and a job popped up in the industrial engineering department of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor that where they're looking for someone with an undergraduate engineering degree and a PhD in a social or behavioral science. And when I got there, there were a lot of different people that wanted to get me involved in their studies because I had a unique background. And one of them was the US-Japan auto study. And then I got exposed to, well, first of all, the auto industry, you couldn't spit in Ann Arbor without you know coming across the auto industry. Uh, so uh, I figured I should learn something about it. I wasn't particularly into cars, uh, but then you would immediately hear about the Japanese and the Japanese invasion and Japanese quality and the threat and what was different about them. And then there's this big study going on comparing the US-Japan auto study with like 100 people involved and all the auto companies were investing. And uh, that then led me to Toyota and to my surprise, because I hadn't planned this at all, I found a real socio-technical system, which is the Toyota production system. And I say that real, a real because 
up to that point, all the cases of socio-technical systems were technical systems where they added self-directed work teams. And there was nothing particularly connecting the tech technical system to the social system other than they called it that. And, but then at, in the trade production system, I saw the connection between just in time and pulling an and on and stopping for quality and making things visible so you can understand visually the difference between actual and standard. And there are all these technical systems that were designed to engage the human system in solving problems and continuous improvement. And that was just an absolute delight. The other thing is that another part of socio-technical systems that's very important is designed for purpose, being very always very clear on what your purpose is. And that was fundamental in Toyota. So to my delight, I discovered a socio-technical system where I wasn't looking for it. And then I kind of got hooked. And since about 1983, I've been studying Toyota and writing about them and uh, written, I guess in total, I published uh, 17 books and about most of them were about Toyota, but I got into the culture, Toyota culture and the Toyota way to lead leadership and uh, the Toyota way and the Toyota way field book and Toyota talent about job instruction training and how that connects to standardized work. And uh, it goes on, but most recently I rewrote the Toyota way and put out the Toyota way second edition. Well, Jeff, that, that's, that's an amazing uh, pedigree. And, and, you know, you just think how many, how many people out there have a have a PhD in in sociology and also have a you know a, a degree in industrial engineering and it just seems like everything came together uh, perfectly. In, in and, retrospect, yeah, at the time it didn't feel that way, but yes, in retrospect. You know, Jeff, let me ask a question. Uh, just coming to nerd out on you for a little bit on the social side, social technical side. In all your years of studies, um, well, I, let me ask a couple questions. The first question I have. You know, I've always wondered, because I think I have all of the books you just referenced, uh, all the different Toyota leadership and all the different. Is the reason that there were so many different flavors of the um, Toyota way, was that because that the Toyota production system is so dynamic and it really couldn't just be captured in one book? Is, is that the reason that that ended up occurring? I I don't think so. I think of the Toyota Way as a overview of the whole, the philosophy, the system, the culture, and then I think of these other books mostly as zooming into specific aspects that I didn't feel I could cover enough. Like leadership is in one chapter, but there's a whole lots of leadership. Uh, so I want so I, and but mostly uh, I've been opportunistic, like I didn't plan my life around learning about Toyota and the Jap Japanese manufacturing. It just happened that I had an opportunity when I got to Michigan. And the reason I wrote the leadership book was because Gary Convis, who had gone from the plant manager at NUMI, the joint venture between Toyota and General Motors, uh, to becoming the first American uh, vice president of manufacturing for North America. And, he and I knew him and he called me and he said he was retiring in three years, phasing into retirement. And he wanted to write a book as a lot, kind of last professional thing he did, and he wanted me to write it with him. And then as we worked together, uh, and mostly I interviewed him, then the recurring theme was leadership. 
and how he was developed first as a leader and then how he learned to develop other leaders. Uh, so I would not have written that book had I not had that collaboration with Gary Convis. And we didn't collaborate to write about leadership. We collaborated so he could share what he learned at Toyota. And it ended up being leadership. So, so to ask another question, one more question around that social technical and I promise I'll let Dr. Mason, Dr. Lancaster ask some is that if we think about a healthcare system, I'm going to transfer from healthcare back over to Toyota to see what you discovered is that um, just think about the social side of the social technical, the uh, many times in healthcare, people find their identity based on the department that they work in. I work in the lab, I work in the ER, I work in radiology or whatever it may be. And the interdependent relationships that occur there uh, between those areas, depending how strong those relationships are or how weak they are, can create amount can create an amount of risk, you know, and that can occur. And so if you're trying to reduce that risk, you would want that relationship to be stronger. Uh, I think Dr. Shine says we'd want to go from a transactional relationship to a a more open and trustful communication. Mm. Did you see anything in your work with Toyota that uh, where you could see that things were being intentionally done to build relationships between functions or between areas so that silos could not occur? Yeah, and that's a good question. The, so there's a lot of things that I've seen at Toyota that I can't neatly bundle together as just one thing, like this is part of the Toyota production system, uh, but there are a lot of good practices in Toyota and they tend to do what makes sense to them. They're not driven by theory so much as uh, practice. And the idea of uh, the interdependencies and collaboration, that was actually the central feature of sociotechnical systems. The original sociotechnical systems theory was the discovery that when you have functional specialists who focus on their own piece of the system, nobody's responsible for the whole of the system. And then you get people, then you get sub-optimization. And people naturally will feel more comfortable talking to people like them and who share the same problems. So you'll get, you know, so the doctors will congregate, and the nurses will congregate, and the orderlies will congregate, and the lab will be separate from the uh, the medical part, the medical side. Uh, so that just happens naturally. That sort of likes to attract, and also it seems to happen naturally that when you give somebody a department as a leader, and they have a budget, that they would like to grow their budget and they're less concerned about the budget of other places and getting people to share is not so easy. So uh, you get these fiefdoms that developed, develop. Uh, and in Toyota, that I don't think that happened as, as much from the beginning. And part of it is Japanese culture where the idea of collaboration, the, and I, there's been things written, for example, about rice farming compared to wheat farming. And in rice farming, it really requires a high degree of interdependency and collaboration, whereas wheat farming does not in the community. So that and many other cultural factors have led to Jap the Japanese being more team oriented. And, and we talk about organizational design, 
So how can you redesign the organization around something else besides functions? Like it's very common in in uh, industrial companies to conclude to get that collaboration, they need to have product groups instead of functional groups. And at one point, Chrysler had reorganized the whole company around what they called platform teams, where you had uh, all the people designing a large car, large car platform working in one floor together, and all the people that were doing minivans together. Uh, and Toyota didn't do that, and I had spent a lot of time, this is back in the 1980s, you know, trying to, looking at the, the Chrysler model, which at the time was very innovative, and then comparing that to the Toyota model, and I wrote papers about that. And, I, and the, the point of view of the Toyota people was that they want the functions. They said, we like the functions. We need depth of understanding. But we also need people to work together, so teamwork is very important. And then I said, okay, so how do you get teamwork when people are isolated in functions? Oh, no, you don't understand. They work as a team. We all work for Toyota. Uh, they don't work in isolation. Everybody works together. It's very important. And we all share common goals. So it was almost like I was, we were talking past each other because they couldn't really understand why you would have to create this special organizational structure to force people together they seem to work together fairly naturally. Uh, what I did, we did talk a lot about, and I, a large part of my research focused on the product development system. Most people look at the manufacturing system, but in the product development system, they have a role called the chief engineer. And the chief engineer owns the product, owns the car. They'll say it's the chief engineer's car. So if it's a new Camry, there's an owner of that. If it's an electric vehicle, there's an owner of that, a person who has a small staff, a few people, and then all the functions report to that person. So they come out of their functions and they're all reporting to the same chief engineer. And it's the chief engineer's vision that ties them together. And their job is to support the chief engineer who represents the customer. So that common purpose and focus causes them to work together. Uh, and then the functions are strong but their job is to develop the technical capability of the engineers within say body engineering. So they have great body engineers because chief engineers want second rate body engineers. So the functions serve the chief engineer who serves the customer. And that has worked very well for them. At some point, they, when they developed the first Prius, they put in charge, it was a very new vehicle, it was very different uh, they had never done a hybrid before, and they put in charge somebody who had never been a chief engineer, but he was a great organizer. And he'd come out of test engineering, and he was like, why am I here? <laughs> I'm not supposed to be doing this. I've never been a chief engineer. I've never, never been trained to be a chief engineer. So he gathered together the manager, the heads of each of the functions into one room. And it happened to have red carpet, so people would say the talk about the crazy red carpet room where these people are huddled together and they're creating the car of the future. It was almost like science fiction, so it kind of got a special reputation. Uh, eventually, it became called the Obeya because in Japanese, big room means Obeya. So he had, when he got appointed to be a chief engineer, he actually said, "I'll do it only if you give me a big room." <laughs> So I can get all the right people together and we can meet every day because I don't know enough 
to be a chief engineer. That then became the new model for product development in Toyota, the Obeya system. Uh, and it was only because of necessity. Uh, but then they realized he actually did better without being an experienced chief engineer because he had the heads of the functions. Then other people would say, it's not enough to have the heads. I need all the key engineers, lead engineers in addition. So I need 80 people, not 10 people. So it kept on evolving and changing different chief engineers. So that was the first time they had physically co-located people. Whereas in other companies in what was called concurrent engineering, which is to simultaneously design the product and the process and <clears throat> safety into it and uh, you know the whole life cycle of the vehicle. That was a big thing in the West. And their key tool was co-location, put everybody, sit everybody together, get a different office building away from the, the rest of the company. Uh, and Toyota never did that, but they seemed even more effective because they had this common focus uh, and that's where something like Hoshin Connery also comes in, is to create that common focus. So we're not working, I'm not working for process engineering and you're not working for body manufacturing. We're all working for the common goals of this plant. And then we have goals for our function, but also often those goals, if my goals as a pr process engineer are to create the best quality body in the world, I have to work through the body manufacturing department. That's the only way I can make it happen. So they have to be my customer. Mm. Oh, that's uh, really fascinating. And and you talked about the Prius, and I was thinking about the the chapters in your book um, dedicated to how Toyota approaches technology, especially emerging technology. And I'm I'm the chief medical information officer for Baptist. And so my job is to really try to optimize the electronic health record and be that bridge between the, the physicians and providers and the, the technical team. And, but my job really probably didn't exist in most places 15 years ago before, you know, the big investment um, with the high tech act to really try to digitize um, our medical record system. And so there's a big push you know, uh, with the Recovery Act um, and the High Tech Act to, to digitize um, the electronic medical record or the medical record. And so all of a sudden there was all this government money to uh, to give to hospitals if they would adopt these electronic health records. Um, and a lot of the records at the time were not that mature. And so a lot of what got put into place was not necessarily there that, that could improve the clinical care and, and really augment the processes and um, I was just really thinking about that when I went that part of your book where you're talking about how Toyota, uh, you know, is, doesn't really seem to be the one that rushes to adopt the new technology as fast as maybe some of its competitors, but uses it to augment their their processes a little bit better. Can you can you touch on that a little bit? I, I thought that was fascinating. Well, I think the uh, fundamental idea is that they're thinking about design for who, not just design for what. So they're thinking about who's gonna use this, who's gonna interact with this, what are they doing? Normally there's some process in place already without the technology. And then you're, some would think I'm replacing that with the technology. But Toyota tends to think, I already have a process in place. What's, what are the problems with that manual system you know, that 
can be solved with digital technology? What are the areas that could be sped up that could be enhanced with digital technology? So, given that, and also they will look at the process and say, is this manual process done well? If it's done poorly, maybe once we, through Kaizen, improve it, we won't need the technology. So often if you're comparing uh, a manual system to a, to a digital system, uh, you just take what you have. And if the manual system is bad, it's very easy to make the digital system look good by comparison. But once you've improved the technical system, you may find it's not necessary or the technology is simpler. So I use as one example in the book, and this is kind of an extreme example, uh, in uh, engine assembly, uh, there's a lot of moving parts and the, the tolerances are very tight and everything has to fit together tightly. And they have made, Toyota has made efforts to uh, replace the people with robots that assemble. And whenever they've done that, they usually have found it doesn't work well. And they've gone back to a manual system. They, there are certain things like machining of the crankshaft that uh, can, can be done, do, is done with numerically controlled machines. But the actual assembly uh, still includes a lot of people. So uh, in one plant, they decided to uh, do some advanced work to kind of lead the company into, uh, you know, eventually more more automated assembly. Uh, but the person who was responsible for it was a super trade production system expert, a student of Chiono. and he was also trying to develop Kaizen capability in people within Toyota, and mostly he's working in Japan, and. He had trained under Ono and he knew the right way of training and the deep way of training and he wasn't seeing it. He was seeing you know, engineers and, and workers and they weren't being trained right. So he developed what he called the basic model line. And that was to create a manual process, not only a manual process, so you're trying to go ahead from manual to digital. So what he does is he goes backwards. He says, let's start with a system that has no electricity. So everything has to be done by the person and with gravity or with uh, like a, a spring system, you know, or a spring back or something like that. So he creates a uh, this completely non-electric system for making a Lexus engine. And he also has another uh, objective, which is that there's a shortage of labor that's been for, for years, a shortage of labor in Japan. And he thinks that it's necessary to start bringing back retired people. And the problem with retired people is that they don't do assembly because it's physically taxing. So he wants to make this line friendly to retired older people. Uh, so he brings back all the retirees to design the line. Hmm. And he has this goal of creating the, uh, the, the best engines made by the highest level of craftsmanship by people using all their senses. Hmm. And he creates this line and they use all sorts of devices with gravity and, uh, they have to to uh, have ways of testing the engine 
So they develop these manual means of testing and uh, they have devices that will check to make sure the parts are all in place, uh, Pokioka devices. Uh, it's an amazing system. It's like a Rube Goldberg toy. And then he would bring engineers in from different parts of the company to go through a six week training program where they had to work on the line and do Kaizen to the line. And it's getting better and better. And in the meantime, across the wall is the actual factory that does, that does assembly. And they're learning how to simplify the processes on this manual line. And then they're going to these uh, higher speed lines and they're saying, if we do it this way, it will be very easy to put a robot in. Mm. And it could be a very simple robot. It just has to spin something, for example. And then they put in what's called cobots, which is a big deal these days, which are cooperative robots, robots that have artificial intelligence and they can move and know what they're seeing and they can avoid the people. So you don't have to have them caged in. You can have them working side by side with a person. So they have cobots that are doing these very simple tasks and assisting the workers. And then the workers are doing the hard stuff. And it works really well. Uh, and it's real cheap compared to if they had gone in with the idea we're gonna automate this and put in robots every place. Uh, that's just an example of the way of thinking. So, so now, Jake, so, so, yeah. Jake anyway. you, we need to go back to paper so that you can make the electronic <laughs> well, medical the, record better. Well, well I think, I think the, that, there's an example of that in, in I do a three day uh, master class in lean leadership in the UK and we, we spent a day in the Toyota plant in the UK and they, uh, they have an and on system. You pull the cord when there's a problem and then uh, you keep track of how many and on poles there were. And then you look at the end of the day and say, here's a bunch of and on poles. There are problems here. Let's solve this problem. So every day you're solving a problem. So some young engineer got the idea of automating the and on pull process so that when you pull the and on, you'll immediately see in a display where the and on poles are, the, you know, how many there are. There's graphics showing you where there are high numbers of and ons. And you can zoom down to the process level. You can zoom up to the uh, part of the line. Uh, and it was really slick. So I would go on these tours and they'd show me this automated system that had cool graphics and you know the people I was taking on the tour and everybody was impressed by this automated system. Uh, then we went to another area where they had, what they call it an obeo, which was a big room that was visual, but it was to teach not to, it wasn't a project management room, it was to teach how they develop people. And they had developed a new uh, floor, they call it the floor management development system, their daily management system. They developed a new daily management system and one of the problems they had is now people were only looking at the computer for the andon pulls, and they didn't know why the andon was pulled. They just knew there's a bunch of pulls on job number 76 during the first shift. Uh, so this system forced them to write down the reasons on paper every time there was an andon pull. Then, based on what they wrote down, they would develop a Pareto chart of the biggest reasons. Then they'd pick a reason, 
would write that problem on a card and that would go on day one. And then they would move that card through day two, day three, day four. When it reached day five, if they hadn't solved the problem, it would escalate to the group leader to the next level up. Uh, so they, there was almost like a countermeasure to the automated system. <laughs> they had to go backward. And what they really wanted was people to think, you know, what is the problem? Why do we have this problem? And they wanted also the idea of one by one problem solving. If you take on too many problems at once, you don't solve any of them. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I want to talk a little bit about culture and, you know, it seems like that that the Toyota culture was something that was so in that has been so ingrained in them that that they themselves couldn't really define it. it was is that something that you that you um, that you saw as you were as you were studying yeah. and looking at Toyota? And and it makes me think about you know I was in Guatemala a few years and and I'll go kind of down a rabbit trail, but I was I was in an area where there were a lot of indigenous people and they had a they had a problem with with malnutrition. And as they were studying these people who ate tortillas every day, mm. when they asked them to keep a food diary, they never mentioned they never mentioned tortillas because it was mm. such a part of their lives that that, you know, it's just like breathing oxygen. And it almost seems like the um, if you ask the Toyota people about their culture, it, it, it's really hard for them to. To, to put a definition on it or, or to explain it. It's not, well, it, okay, anyway, basically that's not true. And that's part of the things that make, one of the things that makes Toyota unique, and I describe them as a learning organization. Mm -hmm. So they have discovered things that they make explicit as kind of rules of behavior. And they've been doing that going back to the Toyota production system in Ono, and he could explain very well the Toyota production system after he invented it, after he developed it, after he tested it. Uh, and he could develop, he could explain it very well. Although he didn't believe in writing it down at the time. He okay. would say, it's happening, it's live at the Gemba. We're, we're doing Kaizen, we're learning every day at the Gemba. If you write it down, you'll kill it. And I think he thought, if you write it down, people will talk too much about it and it will become theoretical. Whereas what was really important was the practice at the Gemba. In, uh, in around the 1970s, they were teaching this to suppliers and, and then they started to write it down and then they created the Toyota production system house, which is very clear and uh, explicit. Uh, and what I think really helped them to understand the culture was when they had to bring it to other countries. Mm. So, for example, NUMI, they decided to, to open an assembly plant in the United States. It was launched in 1984. Uh, it was, at the time, it was the biggest thing happening in the company. And the purpose of NUMI was to learn how to bring the Toyota production system overseas. So they had never created a whole assembly plant outside of Japan, and they weren't actually sure if they could bring the what was necessary of the culture to the United States. And they weren't even sure what elements of the culture were necessary. So they viewed the, the uh, and Numi was a joint venture between General Motors and Toyota became very famous because in the first year, 
they were more productive and they had better quality and they performed better than any other plant in General Motors in year one. And they had been given the worst plant in General Motors gave them a closed down plant, which they closed down because the people were so bad. Because there were wildcat strikes, there were grievances, there it was like a battleground between management and worker. So they close it down for that reason, and then they tell Toyota, hey, we've got this plant. And by the way, we talked to the United Auto Workers, and we agreed that we would hire 85, 80% of those people back, see what you can do with them. And it was almost like they wanted Toyota to fail. And, and the way Toyota develops the people and treats the people and brings them to Japan, invests in them, and they, by the uh, first year, it's the best plant in General Motors. Uh, and the General Motors people are scratching their heads. You know how they get, how could they do that? They had no grievances for many, many years. Uh, and what was unusual was that, and also there was a, it was a joint venture. It's a, so it's a separate company. And General Motors is making all these demands now. Toyota's agreement was that they were teaching the Toyota production system, which would be you know it would be really worth hundreds of millions at least, maybe billions, but General Motors didn't really value that very much. They wanted to make small cars cheaply, which the Japanese, with high quality, which the Japanese could do and they couldn't do. So they basically saw it as a, as a manufacturing plant to make small cars. And so they were debating, debating with Toyota about how, what percentage of the cars would be Chevy, Chevy products and what percentages would be Toyota. And Toyota saying, we don't care. You know, we'll make all Chevy products. We don't care. So they started off with the idea of making only the Chevy Nova, which could, didn't sell because it said Chevy on it at the time. So they had to rush a Toyota Corolla to the plant. Uh, but the reason that Toyota didn't care is their only purpose for that plant was for learning. And it was expensive and it could have bankrupt the company if it failed, but they were looking at it as a living laboratory to understand the American culture and how to bring the Toyota production system to that culture. And they learned a lot. In fact, there was there were Toyota Japanese people in every shop, in every department, and they were moved there for a few years. And their only job was to teach the Americans and to stand back and reflect and study. And they would call in every night with field reports like they're anthropologists. Then they used what they learned from there to create the, the Kentucky plant, which is their first wholly owned Toyota plant. And then they've, now they're all over the world, but every time they go into a country, it's a learning experiment. You know, so they'll, they'll, they went to Russia, I remember, and they had sent a bunch of people over to Russia just to teach TPS to other companies for free, just so that they could learn about Russian culture and how TPS interacted with Russian culture before launching a plant there. So I don't know any other company that would do that. So they actually, they actually try to adapt. They well, try to really adapt, but study and, you know, act like researchers, like yeah. we're going to set up an experiment and we're going to study what happens, collect data, draw conclusions. By the time they did the Toyota Way 2001, and this is 2001, you know, back in the 80s, they're doing the plant NUMI, so it's decades. Um, they had learned enough about their culture and how, to, how, it's, how it fits overseas 
to be able to write it down. And and but the reason I wrote it down was not for people in Japan, but for people outside Japan. Hmm. And that was there. You know, it's a very it's a slim little document, a pamphlet, really. I think it's about 30 pages and a set of principles around this house of respect for people and continuous improvement. So it's very simple. They actually tried hiring it out. They've been working with the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, and they asked them to try their hand at writing uh, a, a document. And the uh, and I, I participated in that. This is before I wrote the turn away. And they they really didn't get a lot out of it. Ultimately, they wrote it themselves because they want it to really reflect their values, but also to be very simple and clear and crisp with key points, not a lot of text. I was surprised that they appreciated the Toyota Way because uh, it was so long, it was so many words, which would be very unusual for them. Uh, but they thought that I explained it better than they could. So in that sense, they appreciated an outsider coming in and explaining. So I was explaining in detail things that they probably didn't feel they needed that level of detail for their own internal purposes. I gotcha. That was great. Yeah, one of the things I really liked about your your book was the the chapter on Tesla and Toyota, um, especially you know talking about the difference between the importance of continuous improvement and how you can be a great organization with if you did continuous improvement really well, but if you don't have also a great strategy that somebody else may come along and and potentially you know replace you. Can you talk a little bit about how you know that dynamic plays out? A little bit of uh, what you talk about in your book and and how Toyota uh, approaches strategy. Well, okay. So first of all, uh, one of the main points I try to make in that book is you can't copy strategy. That every organization has something about it that's unique, and if you're competitive, then you need to have something about yourself that's unique, and. Uh, Therefore, if you copy somebody's strategy, the best you can do is chase them and you may not be equipped. So if Toyota, for example, were to say, you know, we really want to be Tesla when it was starting to become clear that Tesla was successful. Uh, here you've got this company that's making, selling 10 million vehicles a year, every type of vehicle in countries all over the world, a huge supply base all over the world. A lot of them are making components for engines and, engine, and ga for gas engines. What do you do with all those assets? Do you just, uh, you know, and the only thing you could really do would be to bankrupt the company and start over, which General Motors ended up doing in the Great Recession. But uh, so Toyota had to start where they're starting from, which is a mature company, and they also uh, their their selling point has been quality, safety, reliability. Uh, so they so they couldn't take the risks of Tesla. Uh, but the strategy process takes place in Toyota's case at the uh, board of directors level. Uh, unlike most publicly listed companies, Toyota does not have an external board. They have an internal board with some external people on it. But the the chairman of the board is Akio Toyota. The president of the company is Akio Toyota. The members of the board include the executive vice presidents of each global function. So the same person that's running R&D is in the board strategically planning. And they bring in a lot of outside people to make presentations. And they also get a lot of input from the managing officers, the people who are in countries. 
And, and that's one thing that, you know, I call the learning organization. I talk about scientific thinking. They're really good at collecting voluminous amounts of information and whittling it down to small numbers of key points. That seems to be a core competency, which you have to do for strategy. And then they set the strategy and it's a combination of, uh, what we think of as a vision or a purpose and then how they're going to position themselves from from a business point of view so it's the and there's their ultimate purpose always has is always focused on societal impact and then now that that vision and they used to have a 10-year vision rolling vision every 10 years they had a new vision and uh now that global vision has been replaced by even longer term Vision. So they have a vision for 2050, for example, and then they have a vision for 2030, which then became 2025. Then, after, and those visions include goals, for example, environmental goals, and then they translate that into a business plan, and they have a five-year rolling plan and a three-year rolling plan, and then they convert that into annual plans, which get uh, deployed throughout the world through Hoshin Conry. So uh, I, so they they have a very you know sophisticated institutionalized process, and their uh, their strategy is very. They, there's also a concept we talk about in product development called set based design, which is don't put all your eggs in one basket. So that way of thinking includes goes to uh, product planning as well. So they are not in a position where they could or would want to put all their eggs in the electric car basket like Tesla would. And partly it's a transition issue. If they want to be able to effectively transition from all the suppliers and the infrastructure and the employees that they're responsible for in all these plants around the world to uh, say they end up being an electric car electric vehicle manufacturer, uh, how can they phase that in over, say, a 20-year period? Uh, and also, they're, they're doing portfolio management, which is a very central part of any strategic planning. What is your portfolio? And there's a concept in strategic planning called ambidextrous organizations, where you'll have, you have different capabilities and there'll be a certain percentage of the company that's focused uh, on very long-term breakthrough research and some on uh, lateral research that expands upon uh, what you already know how to do. And then there'll be some uh, just basic development of your existing cash cow products. And the cash cow products feed the breakthrough research and the intermediate research. So Ted is doing all those things and Tesla didn't have to do that. Everything for them is breakthrough. They have one goal to make electric vehicles. Uh, so a completely different situation yeah. and yeah. they can't. And the worst thing to it would do would be to say, oh, we need to be like Tesla. That would be, but on the other hand, if you look at GM, you look at Ford, you look at Volkswagen, it seems like their goal is to be like Tesla. Yeah, no, it seems like, um, you know, to, uh, especially with you're talking about how much they put into R&D for the, the five-year plan versus the 10-year plan. Um, it seems like they're really, and diversifying that portfolio, it seems like to me they're they're really trying to 
um, create a sustainable process for, I guess, fending off the creative destruction that you think about with, you know, Kodak and IBM and Apple and some of those other, you know, that went through when, with some of these uh, upstarts that came through and, and really disrupted their industries. Right, right. Yeah, so they they are, are very stable despite Nakutoda will tell anybody else that this is a hundred year disruption of the industry. A once in a century, it tells it to everybody. We're going through right now a hundred year disruption. If we get this wrong, we'll go out of business. If we get it right, we'll be set for the next hundred years. Uh, so he considers it the p- a pivot point of the company. He's not taking it lightly. Uh, but on the other hand, Toyota believes that uh, they're not convinced that the future will be purely battery electric. They think that a better technology for the for for the long term is actually hydrogen fuel cells, because uh, you're actually creating the clean energy inside the vehicle instead of plugging into some other energy source. Uh, but the you need an infrastructure for hydrogen, and it costs a fortune. And you know who's going to put that money in? Uh, but Toyota believed that they could evolve into hydrogen over, say, a 30-year period. And they believed in the meantime they could use hybrid technology. And what they and what they and they had graphs and charts and they could show you why they you know the reasoning behind it. And then now they can show you why their graphs and charts were wrong. They would say, you know, we were wrong. I mean they're trying to predict the future. I don't know right. if your predictions of the future are hundred percent accurate. Mine aren't. Uh, it's hard to predict uh hard to predict anything, especially about the future. Right. That- right. Yeah. Right. So that was, yeah. So anyway, uh, oh, they, they, uh, thought that that would their, their mistake was in not realizing how fast the cost of battery technology would come down. Once the industry moved in the direction of battery technology, there's huge resources put into R and D and battery technology and innovation. It just happened really fast. So the cost came down and the range came down fast. The cost is directly related to the range because you, you don't want to pay a fortune for uh, batteries to give you a 400 miles range. Uh, but anyway, they, uh, they had to change their, their strategy and invest in battery electric vehicles, but they still thought there was a place for hydrogen and it might, for example, be in commercial trucks. So they own, uh, Hino, which is a tr- large commercial truck maker, so they're going to be making a hydrogen truck. Uh, and the, anyway, so they're they're they are doing set based design. Now, in the meantime, they've got gas, which then moves to hybrid, which then moves to plug in hybrid, which then moves to battery electric. And they have all they have vehicles in all those spaces. And as time is going on, they're getting more battery. The the Rav4 SUV is uh, a plug-in hybrid and can go 45 miles on purely battery. Which it turns out for most Americans is plenty for their normal driving. So they they'll be using a battery electric vehicle, but you only have the batteries required for 45 miles. And then the gas engine will kick in if you're traveling more a certain day. Uh, so you, always, you can feel comfortable on a long trip that you can go to a gas station. So they find that to be a good mix, 
and they say, why have a 400-mile range in a battery when you almost never use it? It's just waste. Uh, so anyway, their reasoning is different, and it's not that they don't know what they're doing uh, compared to Tesla, but certainly they have been, like, the industry pulled along by Tesla, which is kind of shocking. This little tiny startup changes the whole global industry. Pretty amazing. And that certainly has happened. And But... They're not the kind that will say, I'm here, I'm going to jump to there because I have this new competitor that's doing well and their stock price is high. They're much more thoughtful and deliberate. And Dr. Liker, let me uh, ask one final question as we, I know we're coming to a, near the end. I'm so thankful and appreciative of you spending time with us. Is uh, I think you already know this, but we are heavily involved at Baptist Memorial Healthcare uh, with the improvement kata, coaching kata. And uh, we've had some great, great success in, at improving patient care as well as other parts of, of the business. But there's still some people that are maybe confused or misunderstand what the improvement kata, coaching kata is. They see people practicing on a, a whiteboard and they might see someone holding a card. And so they might, in their mind, interpret the improvement kata, coaching kata as a tool. They might in interpret it as a problem-solving methodology. Uh, and I know that Mike Rother was your student uh, that wrote the Toyota Kata. Uh, can you tell us a little bit at a high level uh, to kind of maybe even get rid of some of those myths and misunderstandings? What is the four-step improvement kata and coaching kata? Well, let me just back up a little bit. So in the new Toyota way, the second edition, I recreated what I call the 4P model uh, because of all my discussions with Mike and what Mike taught me. And now the four Ps are philosophy, which is your purpose. And I call it long-term systems thinking. It's really thinking about the organization as a system that provides services to a larger system and all the parts interact. And then I talk about processes which are the way you deliver value to customers. And then I talk about people who are developed to work in and improve those processes. And then I talk about problem solving as the way you do continuous improvement to improve how you deliver your value to your customers. So those are the four Ps. In the new model, I have that as a circle, as puzzle pieces that are interconnected because the system. And then in the center, I have scientific thinking. So you, you're really not going to be effective. And when I talk about Toyota strategy and the way they view these new technologies and new direction, uh, they're thinking scientifically. They understand the world's a complex system. They understand where they are, what their current condition is. They understand they ha they've developed a strategy and vision of where they want to be. And they understand that the world is complicated and they can't predict what's going to happen. So they're going to be experimenting along the way. They're going to be trying things. So they'll tend to, they, they first made a battery electric car for China where there's more immediate demand and more bigger incentives for battery electric vehicles. So they said, let's try it there. That's a good testing ground to experiment. And then from there, they then grew and developed and, uh, so that I, so the, the improvement kata model that Mike came up with was directly taken from Toyota and the way they think about things. Uh, so, for example, when they think of a lean pro 
a lean process, you might think about standardized work. How do we standardize this? And many companies would say you can't, you know, what they see a quote like you can't have continuous improvement without standardization. So therefore we have to standardize before we can have continuous improvement. And Toyota doesn't think that way. They think about what the purpose is, what the goal is. So the goal for standardized work is to have an efficient, high quality way of performing this work that is shared among the people doing that job and becomes the way we do it until we can find a better way, which could happen very quickly because you're always looking for a better way. Uh, so the uh, having a shared group learning and developing a method and then stabilizing it and developing a method and then stabilizing it at a high level is the goal. The goal is not standardized work. And then there's a tool called standardized work that can help you on the journey to get there. So the improvement kata model is to help people think that way, learn to think that way. So you always start with the purpose, the challenge, the direction. What are we trying to accomplish? And we're not trying to accomplish implementing standard work. We're not trying to accomplish implementing Kanban because that's part of lean and we're supposed to be doing lean. We're trying to accomplish something for our patients. We're trying to accomplish something for uh, the, the healthcare system and its cost structure. You know, so you have to be very clear about what you're trying to accomplish. Then you, like a good scientist, you say, what do we know today? So you study the current condition. And so I know I I know where I want to go. I know where I am. I don't know how to get there. And I, I sometimes use the analogy of mountain climbing. You could have a great plan, great equipment. Once you start to climb the mountain, things start to go wrong, <laughs> and you have to deal adapt. So the adaptive learning process is experimenting, and for that, so step one is the their direction. Step two is where am I? The current condition. Then step three is. Uh, now, now that I know where I am and I know the direction, what would be a shorter term goal to move toward something where I can't, I don't know how to get to it. And he calls it a target condition, but instead of a year out, it's two weeks out. And I can imagine getting there and it's concrete. Uh, and then still, even if it's two weeks out every day, I'm going to try something and the something I try will be an experiment in the form of an experiment with a prediction, then I'll check what happened, I'll reflect on what I learned, and then I'll design the next experiment. So step-by-step, step, I'm getting closer to the target condition. When I get to the target condition, I say, all right, I'm here. Now I've moved out my frontier of knowledge. This is my new current condition. What's my next target condition? So step-by-step, step, you're moving in the direction of the, the purpose, the challenge, which would seem impossible at the beginning of the journey. Uh, so that's the uh, the model, and that's again the way Toyota thinks about everything. Whether it's how do we deal with once in a century disruption in the industry, or how do I how do I go from five people on the assembly line to four people, or four processes? Fan fantastic, great great explanation. And uh, oh, Dr. Kata, by the way, the only purpose of the kata is to practice thinking that way. It's to do right. nothing else but to practice and learn to think that way. It's not the way you do it all the time, but it's a uh, it's like going into the gym when you're learning karate. 
and you're not actually fighting, but you're practicing different moves. And only through repetition with corrective feedback will you get good and master that task, or in this case, way of thinking. Once you have the way of thinking, you can apply it to many things. To any time, anytime you're trying to reach a goal. That that's that's perfectly said. Really said, Dr. Liker. I just want to tell you on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for your great work. I I love that you wrote a second edition to the Toyota Way because that showed me that you really, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it. And so uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much, Dr. Liker, for your time. Really appreciate you. Thanks for having me, Skip. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Bye bye.